Welcome to the first installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, news, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This installment of Ear to the Ground will focus on living democracy, a concept that is at the core of LSP's work to help foster sustainable food and farming system. Activist and author Frances Moore LePay writes extensively about living democracy in her new book, Democracy's Edge, Choosing to Save Our Country by Bringing Democracy to Life. In her book, which is the 15th that she's authored or co-authored over the years, LePay lays out the difference between thin democracy and living democracy. She then profiles several real-world examples from here and abroad that exemplify living democracy in action. LePay is probably most well-known for her best-selling book, Diet for a Small Planet, which was published in 1971. In recent years, she has become widely respected for her work on hunger, environmental protection, and democracy. She is a co-founder of two national organizations that focus on food and the roots of democracy. LePay is the fourth American to receive the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel. On November 18, 2005, Francis Moore LePay was kind enough to speak at a special Land Stewardship Project fundraiser in Minneapolis. During her standing room only presentation at St. Joan of Arc Church, LePay discussed her new book and her pioneering work on the global issues of food, land, and democracy, as well as why there is real hope for progressive change. While she was in town, LePay took time out to talk with me about her work. We will feature excerpts of that interview during this show, as well as a future Ear to the Ground podcast. We will also feature her talk at Joan of Arc Church in two upcoming programs. But first, I'd like to share with you a review of her 2003 book, Hope's Edge, The Next Diet for a Small Planet. This review was written for the Land Stewardship Letter by Kathy Eberhardt, LSP's Membership Coordinator. Hello, this is Kathy Eberhardt. I'm the Membership Coordinator with Land Stewardship Project. I'll be reading a book review that I wrote for the Land Stewardship Letter in the April-May-June 2005 edition. The book review is of the book Hope's Edge, The Next Diet for a Small Planet by Frances Marlopay and Anna LaPay. I started reading Hope's Edge on a 5.45 a.m. flight in mid-March, the first leg of our annual journey to visit my husband Guillermo's family in Honduras. Despite the early hour and a nearly sleepless night, I found the book easy to read. Perhaps I was still stimulated by the cup of coffee I'd had at 3.30 a.m. before I left the house, but I know it also helped that I'd had the chance to hear Frances Marlepay speak a month earlier when the Land Stewardship Project co-sponsored her visit to Winona. The first chapter, which I read on the airplane, was a good review of the main points of her speech. Her conviction that hunger exists because of a lack of democracy rather than a scarcity of food the five thought traps that lead us to do as a society those things that we as individuals abhor. Those moments of dissonance that push us to take the first steps toward change. The importance of putting ourselves in the company of those who are finding the courage to create a more sustainable world. It was for this last purpose that Frances and her daughter Anna made their seven-month journey around the world to write Hope's Edge. The book became a literary equivalent of the incredible Terra Madre event that Audrey Arner wrote about in the last Land Stewardship Letter, a bringing together of many voices and storage, stories from around the globe and a source of inspiration and hope. 
relaxing in my sister-in-law's newly built cement block house in Honduras. I read about Francis and Anna's trip to Brazil to learn about the landless workers' movement. I had first heard about this initiative in Francis's speech and was eager to learn more about this incredible social movement that has settled a quarter of a million landless families on 15 million acres in 2,600 settlements throughout Brazil. I was also moved by their visit to the city of Bela Horizonte, translation, beautiful horizon, which has declared food security a right of citizenship. In the lush tropical cloud forest where my husband's parents live and farm, I followed Francis and Anna to tropical Bangladesh to learn about the Grameen Bank and its 20-year history of providing microcredit to the poor. After a long, hot drive to visit another of Guillermo's sisters, I escaped the heat in front of a fan and read about Francis and Anna's visit to steamy India to see the often disastrous impacts of the Green Revolution, as well as the eco-farming, seed-saving movement begun by Vandana Shiva in response. Surrounded by the ever-present poverty of Honduras, I appreciated the mother-daughter team's reflection on the learned helplessness that keeps millions in desperate poverty. They also described the joyful Greenbelt movement founded by Nobel Prize winner Wangari Matai that has planted over 20 million trees in the desert and brought empowerment to millions of women in the process. I was especially pleased to find the chapter on fair trade that bounces Francis and Anna from the Max Havilar Foundation in Holland to Transfair USA in California to conversations with coffee farmers in Guatemala and Nicaragua, and even to Food Alliance. Our own fair trade coffee business, Velasquez Family Coffee, sells the organic shade-grown coffee produced by Guillermo's father, two brothers, and a brother-in-law. As my thoughts started turning to our return trip, the book touched a bit closer to home as well, with a description of the author's visit to France. Here they write about the concept of multifunctional farming, we call it multiple benefits of agriculture. With familiar stories of farmers moving from confinement livestock operations and row crops to hoop houses and grazing. As our airplane landed back in Minnesota, I finished the last few pages of the final chapter that features all the great things going on in neighboring Wisconsin. A perfect homecoming. The book was engaging vacation reading because Francis and Anna are such great storytellers, filling the book with colorful details. The book could be equally valuable as a college textbook. It is full of facts and careful analysis of the most challenging issues of our times. While I was already somewhat familiar with many of these issues and some of the stories, some things were completely new to me, like the Tobin tax, a proposal to levy, levy tiny taxes on the $2 trillion in foreign currency transactions that occur every day as a way to slow speculative trading while also raising billions of dollars that could go to alleviate the worst impacts of poverty. This book is practical and inspirational. I would be amiss not to mention the hundred pages of recipes in the book, as well as the extensive bibliography, list of resources, and discussion questions at the end, all intended to help us take our own next steps. Francis and Anna expertly weave facts and analysis with the stories of their travels into an inspirational and philosophical journey of hope. Not a simple hope that just looks at the happy part of life, but a grounded, honest hope that, as they write, challenges us to expand our hearts to let it all in. All the messiness, the fear, the sadness, the loss, the longing. 
as well as the wondrous sense of awakening that this era holds. I especially appreciate the way they incorporate their own doubts and questions about whether these efforts are making any real difference, in a sense, taking us on their mental journey to find the edge of hope. At the risk of giving away the end of the story, I leave you with some of their final words. Hope does not come from convincing ourselves the good news is winning out over the bad. Nor does it come from assessing what's possible and going for that. Since it's not possible to know what's possible, we are free to focus on creating the world we want. Hope is not what we find in evidence. It is what we become in action. We become hope because we are alive. We become hope because our planet needs us to. And our hope can spur us on to take our own stand to choose. If you would like to read this book review, you can find it in the Land Stewardship Letter, edition April-May-June 2005. It's also available on the Land Stewardship Project website at www.landstewardshipproject.org. Go to the newsroom and follow the links to the newsletter archive. Thanks, Kathy. Well, now it's time to dive right in and talk to LePay herself about the connections between hunger, democracy, and the land. Here's an excerpt of an interview I did with her on November 18th before her LSP fundraiser talk. As you'll see, she speaks on these issues as eloquently as she writes about them. One thing that struck me when I was uh, looking at your book, and you even talked about this a little bit in one of your chapters, is you had the idea of people being hungry in the world had vexed you at a young age, and it really got you into some of these issues, and you looked at uh, uh, the role of democracy and the lack of democracy. And you wrote about that a lot. You had a big impact in that area, and then you left it for a little bit. You talked about the book uh, in The Quickening of America in 1994 that came out. You didn't talk about food issues per se at all. And when you wrote this book, uh, you really, food is a big a major part of it, and you you feel like a lot of things have happened in the meantime from '94 till <laughs> I do 2005. I do. I feel there has been a real quickening in the food uh, awakening here. Um, yeah, it's really interesting you pick up on that because the precursor to Democracy's Edge is a book called The Quickening of America, as you say, that that talks about what I call living democracy emerging across a number of sectors. But I, I deliberately didn't talk about food because I, I just didn't feel that there were at the, that point enough examples of this real shift going on of solutions being in the hands of quote-unquote regular citizens mm-hmm. and initiating across uh, across our whole society. Certainly there were pockets then. Uh, certainly there were organic farmers doing the right thing then. Right. But uh, when I think about, for example, the movement of um, just ticking off a few of the farm-to-school programs, mm-hmm. how that has just leapt forward, and now they're somewhere on the order of 500 farm-to-school programs nationally. Um, I think of uh, community gardens. I think of doubled in the last decade. Uh, right. I think of farmers' markets. I think of increased two-thirds in the last decade or so. So there has been, not to mention the birth of community-supported agriculture, which I'd never heard of in 1994. It was hmm. just barely getting getting started then. And now I, I was just in Madison, Wisconsin, where I had been looking at 
community-supported agriculture in the year 2000. And today there, there are eight times as many people involved in community-supported agriculture in Madison, which is a real hub of yeah. that, than there were even five years ago. So, uh, yes, I feel that there is... Uh, that food has leapt, food and farming have leapt forward to the to real, you know, leadership role. I guess you could say mm-hmm. in this um, movement toward a vital, engaged democracy. What what happened from '94 until now, though? What what we had a lot of these same problems before, but was there a uh, or did these were these things there and we just didn't realize that the stories weren't getting told? Well, I think certainly the the seeds were there. All of these things. I mean, I think of land stewardship. Certainly, you're older than as an organization older than that but uh i just feel like things have started to take off um and i'd be interested in your thoughts about that too but i I just you know this from those statistics that i just mentioned Mm -hmm. some sort of measure of consciousness uh when i think of organics for example that the the fast it is organic food now is the fastest growing segment of the food industry and something like 20 percent a year is the last thing Mm -hmm. i heard and And uh, three-quarters of all supermarkets now have something in them that's organic. So um, I I think, um, well, in the beginning of Democracy's Edge, I I talk, I answer, I ask and answer my own, this same question you're asking more generally, of what is it that has happened that makes this possible now? How how do you understand that this could possibly be happening now? And part of my answer is a sense of, of crisis, of sense of, you know, just so many more people, Republicans, Democrats across the board saying this is not working. Um, the, the obesity epidemic, right. that was not even, we didn't have that term mm-hmm. in 19, yeah. in the early 90s. We, you know, the whole thing of childhood obesity now is, is, is uh, what, one in every six children is, is overweight and, uh, and the crisis means that now one in every three of our children, I mean, excuse me, children have a one in three chance of developing diabetes mm. uh, yeah. as a res- as large measure result of the changes in our diet. That consciousness just wasn't there. So I think this, this sense of you know, this something is really off um, is, is now uh, at a point where people are saying, you know what, those people I was counting on to sort things out <laughs> for me, They've blown it, and maybe I, you know, using my common sense and my basic values, maybe I do have something to contribute. And so it's that sense of, uh, I remember interviewing a, a, uh, a, high, a, a principal in Chicago in the 1990s after the devolution of authority into school-based, I mean, excuse me, community-based com- councils in Chicago because of such the desperate failure of the Chicago school system. And I said, well, what makes you think you could do any better than the old, you know, centralized system? And she said, all I know is we couldn't do any worse. Hmm. And so I think that that the actual awareness of failure of the experts and the authorities and the centralized structures that are supposed to be solving problems for us is empowering. You know, the very failure in that sense of that, what that principal told me, well, I couldn't do any worse, and right. so therefore I'm going to get out there and try. So there are a lot of changes. I think the, the just the ecological awakening itself seeping into our consciousness allows us to see the ripple of our ripple effects of what we do in a way that maybe is even beneath the conscious level. And uh, so I think there, 
there's and, and the environmental costs mm-hmm. of industrial agriculture as well as other environmental breakdowns that we're experiencing the level of awareness is so much higher today yeah land stewardship's own experience has been uh we we kind of have a situation starting in the the early to mid 90s of almost like a perfect storm where we had farmers who were who had not perfected but had come a long ways in in developing these systems that were very uh, environmentally sound and economically viable and um, they had gotten to a point where okay i'm doing going to more trouble to do this but how do i get rewarded for it and organics is one way but there was just there seemed to be a a need for a way to get rewarded by the marketplace for doing that. And then along at the same time, it seemed like there was this interest among consumers of getting better food, safer food, and stuff that could feel better about how it was produced. And so we saw a little bit of a shift in our work in that we've tried to figure out a way to bring those two together. Mm-hmm. You know, Beautiful. CSAs, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's been real interesting to see that. It's a perfect situation when you can be. It's Absolutely. like time, timing is everything. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this the learning curve, if you will, of agroecology or you know sustainable methods. Because one of the things that I want to do in this book is to is to call us to attention about the words that we use, even the word organic. I, I feel the problem with organic is it focuses us on what's missing mm-hmm. rather than what is being added in terms of the knowledge, the intelligence, the, the uh, learning that goes into uh, working with nature. And so I emphasize in the, in the piece of the book about food, food and farming that we, we should acknowledge that actually this is not going backward to remove things going backward to pre-industrial agriculture. It is really taking us forward to an agroecology approach, to an an ecological farming that is very knowledge-intensive instead of chemical-intensive. So it's a way to honor the intelligence of the farmer, not just saying, oh, well, he's a good guy because he or she is a good person because they don't pollute with chemicals. It's really honoring the greater complexity of the system that is working with nature. And so I really want to drive that home. Yeah, and we found that the danger with organics is it could become just another marketing niche and another uh, uh, value-added market for corporations. And we found that corporations are fine now talking about organics because they see it profit in it, they get a little nervous when you talk, talk about, you use terms like sustainability mm-hmm. and agroecology, because then it's, it's, well, how do we market that? Right, kind exactly, of so. exactly. And I think this goes to me to the heart of the message of Democracy's Edge, what I call living democracy, that which honors the, the, the key players in the economic chain, uh, every every player in the economic chain, and certainly the farmer, and really acknowledging the 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 uh, learning that has to go in and you know I once asked um, a distinguished um, agricultural economist why farmers were using genetically modified seeds mm-hmm. when all the evidence was showing me that there wasn't any real advantage to them in fact they were losing right. markets in the rest of the world and yet they were buying into this and his response was that the advertising the prop- the industry propaganda tells them that that they don't have to think, 
They just have to apply in this very regimented way uh, the the seeds and the chemical applications, and it takes the decision making away. And if you are treated as kind of like, well, you know, you don't have the intelligence right. to really work with this, the, with nature, and all you have, all you can really, and, and and I think the advertising undermines. I, I, I'm not a farmer, but I'm putting myself in the farmer's place here. It would undermine my confidence. Um, and if I'm bombarded with that idea that I'm only going to succeed if I turn over my own intelligence to kind of right. a rote thing, but it, but it did kind of make sense to me because I've seen these incredibly glossy uh, advertising packages from Monsanto and others that just you know just press press that idea that you're removed of all risk if you just follow these one two three and and you don't think on your own and you right. don't think about the consequences and. So I'm hoping that farmers, part of this uh, seizing sustainable agriculture approach, is claiming their own um, power, their own intelligence, and and saying, "Wait a minute! Don't underestimate me. You know, right. don't insult me by thinking that I all I have to do is like follow a little one, two, three step here." Yeah, I think one of the funniest things to see sometimes when you drive out in a rural area is to see. Um, uh, seed and chemical companies in particular will set up what they call answer farms. That's what they call them. Really? It'll be their version of an experiment station where they do seed trials and that type of thing. And they call them an answer farm. And it's the, you know, the implication is you're going to get your answers here. And wow. uh, we're going to, you're going to come and see what's going on and then you're going to go home and adopt this perfectly and that's the answer. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a much different, um, uh, learning system than what we've seen in sustainable agriculture where you learn from other farmers you don't just take that system you've seen at a field day when you visited a farm lock stock and barrel you take it you adapt it to your own system mm-hmm. and it's much more of a give and take right type system rather than like you said taking a right. package and a cookie cutter system right and this this approach is what is now beginning, say, through the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. They have something that they call farmer field schools, which is very much this participatory learning, mm-hmm. and it's not meant that you're going to come here and take home a package, but you're going to learn some principles, you're going to be in discussion, you're going to learn to share what you're learning from your experience, and it's very much honoring the basic right. intelligence of the, of the producer. That's great. Well, that's it for this installment of Ear to the Ground. If you'd like to learn more about Frances Moore LePay and her work, please visit www.democracysedge.org. That's www.democracysedge.org. Just a reminder that Ear to the Ground will be broadcasting her November 18th talk in two parts during future podcasts. We will also feature more of my interview with LePay in a future program. This podcast is a new endeavor for the Land Stewardship Project, and we'd like to hear from you. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSP staff member who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. 
And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. Thanks for listening.